Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sanghang namasami We're in the middle of the talk called Sense the Sacred, and uh, this was given at the Leicester Summer School on the 5th of August 2003, and Lumpur was talking uh, somewhat about his um, time in India. He spent uh, six months in India uh, that year, so there were some references to that um, as he was speaking. So I'll read the last paragraph that uh, I did uh, the other day. There's uh, a few more people here this time. Just to uh, link it with uh, the next part. I think some people are just afraid of being enlightened in case they have to change their lifestyles or something. But it isn't a question, a question of becoming, quote, somebody who is enlightened, is it? It doesn't make sense on that level. The point is to learn to trust in the awareness the enlightened awareness. This awareness is light, actually, and it is here and now. It's not created. It's not a mental image, a nimitter, a sign that you create out of imagination. It's real. It's something that you have with you wherever you go and in whatever state of mind you're in. This, then, is the refuge. The safest place to be, actually, is in this refuge. So in, in speaking in that way, uh, um, one of the, the points uh, I was highlighting is that uh, in uh, uh, in one of the, the ways that Lumpur Sumedha would be uh, regularly teaching, he would say, rather than um, doing something now to become enlightened in the future, or thinking, I'm an, I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now to become an enlightened person in the future, he would take that as a seemingly... Uh, sensible, ordinary, everyday kind of spiritual practitioner type thought and then step back from it. And uh, the point being that, um, as he says here, it's not a question of becoming somebody who's enlightened because uh, what, he's, what he's saying is that the, the person can't be enlightened. That the, If the mind is believing, I am a real person who's an independent uh, entity who was born on this date and will live so many years and will die on another date, uh, you know, I am a person. Starting from that premise, it's impossible for that uh, for there to be real uh, enlightenment. So, the, in a way, the person can't be enlightened. The person is the the prison, uh, and so that uh, uh, what it's pointing to is that the mind can be awake to personal qualities arising and passing away. The mind can be enlightened to the feelings of the body, the sight of the body, the, the sensations of a body, memories that arise in the mind, of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, imagining. All of those arise and can be known by the mind. So the mind can be enlightened. The mind can be uh, fully uh, awake and liberated. But... Um, to, to think of, you know, I am an enlightened person, or I want to be an enlightened person, it, in, this, in this respect, that's an oxymoron. It's, a, it's something that doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> so it's a, it's a stepping back from that assumption that I am an unenlightened person, and I've got to do something now to become enlightened in the future. It's like that, that quality of awareness that knows personhood, like knows the feelings of the body, or knows the thought, that... Uh, that awareness is not a person, it's not personal, it's not female, it's not male, it's not monastic, it's not lay, it's not Theravada, Mahayana, or Buddhist, or, or anything. But as Lumpur says here, it's, uh, <clears throat> it is here and now. This awareness is light. It's not created, it's not a mental image. It's real. It's something that you have with you wherever you go. So that is the, and it, it has to be, because <laughs> that's the very means whereby anything is experienced by any being, is that quality of of awareness, and so that um, this is a, a really essential teaching. And if you've been listening to these these talks, you realise that pretty much every single Dhamma talk in this book, Lumpur says the same thing over and over. <laughs> and we're only about a third of the way through. And I, my prediction is that the other two thirds of the talks will be saying exactly the same thing over and over and over. 
but uh, it's it's uh, interesting how how often we need to hear it, or how we can we can hear the words and cognize what they mean. But then, yeah, but I am a person. I'm I'm Emmeline, or yeah, I'm uh, Manunya, or I'm Amaro, or you know this. I well, yeah, I am. That's my name's on the board. You know, <laughs> that's who I am. I'm the Abbot of Amaravati. That's 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 who I am. So it's uh, that dialogue between the everyday conventional truth, the the samuti satya, the conventional reality, and the paramata satya, the, the that transcendent quality, and uh, that uh, faculty of knowing, that faculty of awareness. That's the um, the activity, or like, or that's the the, the mode of experience that um, whereby that that uh, say that fundamental reality, that transcendent reality. Uh, operates so you can say that the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. That the quality of awareness is the primary activity or the, the uh, primordial uh, the mode of uh, of activity of the Dhamma, of uh, that that fundamental reality. So it's a refuge because it's the it's a, it, it's the re, it's the trustworthy reality that quality of awareness whether the body is sick or, or healthy comfortable or uncomfortable uh, moving or still whatever that awareness is always present that's the very means the very organ of experiencing so then to uh, uh, to continue from here from that place of awareness you can get behind the karmic conditions rather than just being totally lost or overwhelmed by what you experience in life. You can actually learn from tribulation. That means difficulty or trouble or uh, agitation. You can learn from tribulation and enjoy life without trying to squeeze every drop of happiness out of it. When you don't try to hold on to the joy of life, you don't create suffering about its fleeting and changing qualities. Always looking for happiness means that you're never content. And even when you get it, you know you can't keep it. So there's a constant search for more. You become so obsessed with looking for happiness, in fact, that you simply can't enjoy it when it comes. Life in this realm is like this. Put it into perspective. It's beautiful, ugly, right and wrong, good and bad. And even the axes of evil, they belong. So he was also talking about that as an expression that was coming up in the news when I think um, the American president had used the term to refer to uh, other governments, the axis of evil. So this is um, uh, uh, the, this uh, say habit that we have of trying to hold on to uh, the beautiful, hold on to the, the, the things that we find delightful. And uh, many years ago, the poet uh, Will, and artist William Blake expressed that uh, very well, I think in his uh, book called The Songs of Innocence and Experience, has a little poem that is called Eternity, I believe, and it says, uh, goes something like, and it's, uh, <coughs> it goes something like, he that kisseth a joy, uh, so he who binds himself to a joy, doth the winged life destroy. He that kisseth a joy as it flies, lives in eternity's sunrise. So translated into more modern English, <laughs> the, the, uh, if, you, uh, uh, if you bind yourself to a joy, like you, there's something that's delightful and good, oh, that's so great, that's so lovely. Where's my camera? You know, it's a beautiful sunset, you know, grab it. <laughs> Well, this is so delicious, this is so wonderful, this is amazing. And that the mind uh, grabs it, as he says, the, that uh, the, the winged life, the kind of that, uh, that quality of uh, like, uh, flying or freedom uh, that, that is destroyed. <clears throat> so like a bird on the wing, kind of flying through the air. Um, if you bind your heart to a joy, then you destroy that, that, that kind of uh, fluid and, um, uh, say, uh, free happiness, that, that joyfulness. But as he says, if you kiss a joy as it flies, uh, then you live in eternity's sunrise. So that being ready to appreciate that the beauty and its fleetingness, its changingness as being part of its beauty, then uh, that is how, as he says, he uses a very lovely expression, how you live in eternity's sunrise. So there's that... Um, and is mixing the quality. Sunrise is a moment in time, but eternity is timeless. <laughs> so in that one little phrase, he, he brings both of those together: the time, the world of time, and the timeless. And so uh, <clears throat> it's a it's very interesting. When I was in, in Japan, 
the uh, and, uh, they have a um, uh, a very strong feature of Japanese culture is cherry blossom. So they have they have sort of maps in the newspaper where the cherry blossoms are peaking. So on particular days, you have a cherry blossom forecast. I'm not kidding. It's like it's really important in Japanese culture. And one of the things that is is, is significant about cherry blossom is that it's only kind of perfect, quote unquote, for just a, a short time. This is the shortest period of time, just just for a moment. The blossoms are just right, <laughs> but it's not like uh, oh, we got a we got to somehow breed the cherry trees so the blossoms will be perfect longer. The actual, the changingness and the, the fleeting quality, the, the fact that you can't really keep the perfect blossom, you can't hold it, you can't retain it, that is recognized as being part of its beauty. That, uh, that, uh, that very transient, ephemeral, uh, fleeting, uh, changing quality. So that represents wisdom in the Japanese culture. Not to flatter the Japanese amongst us, but uh, I feel that's a a very wise approach to uh, uh, to beauty and to uh, understanding nature, uh, rather than trying to sort of <laughs> fix everything and keep it kind of perfect and and, uh, and pleasing forever. And so that it, I think all of us will recognize that kind of dynamic when something is very powerful or beautiful. You, oh, this is so amazing! It's so beautiful! It's so wonderful! And you're you're so busy getting excited about it that you've you've missed it. And uh, Often that kind of experience comes at the, at the, at the meal time, particularly when somebody in the kitchen has cooked up something you know, that you know, is really, really, really good. It's your absolute favorite thing, and you happen to be particularly hungry that day, and the mind is so focused. Oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. I can't wait. And so that uh, I'm not reading anybody's mind, by the way. This is we're all in this. We were in the same boat. You know, we've all been there or are still there. <laughs> So the mind gets fixated, and it's like, oh, this is amazing, this is incredible. And then your mind is so filled with that excitement, the sort of flush of, of yes in the mind, that next thing you know, you're looking at an empty bowl. Where did it go? Oh, no, I missed it. You know, you're so busy kind of getting excited about it, you inhaled the whole thing, and you, you missed it. So if you're not a monastic, then you probably will be able to go back and have seconds, because you missed it the first time. So that's a both a blessing and a curse for the lay community here. Because as a monastic, you can't go, you know, I can't walk out of the reception room and go back to the server and say, oh, those were rather good, can I have some more, please? You know, that would be very, um, I'd probably get fired as abbot <laughs> for such uncivil behavior. But um, if you're a lay person, you can think, well, I'm only a lay person, and there's still at least half a dish left, and I think I've got a bit of spare room there. Yeah. Oh, actually, I really am hungry. I'm, I'm going to have a busy afternoon. I think I should. <laughs> so that uh, and that the the point of this this teaching and what William Blake was pointing to is to to look at that at the mind that wants to grasp the the joyful, the beautiful, and, and to keep it and own it, and to to recognize that dynamic and to to realize that. Um, well, if if you're given to that, you never really enjoy anything because you're you're just caught up with the um, with the becoming that sense of leaning into the next moment, the imagined future. And so you're never really with with this. And so the dhamma, the the ultimately satisfying quality of reality, is always here and now. It's not just over there. <laughs> it's exactly here. It's not even in half a second. It's 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 this moment. So that. Now, the real joyfulness, the real satisfaction, can only come from that letting go of time and the mind awakening to, to the present. So to continue a little bit. In Banaras every day, we used to, to pass a Kali shrine. And Kali is one of the more interesting ones because she looks like a demon. At least, that's how she is usually represented. She has a red tongue which hangs out of her mouth and she wears a necklace of skulls. People put garlands of flowers around her. When the Christian missionaries first went to India, they were appalled by sights like this. They thought everyone worshipped demons and felt that they had to convert people to God and Jesus Christ, somebody beautiful and loving. This is how the mind works when you're caught on that level of thinking Jesus is beautiful and good, compassionate, full of love and everything. Uh, so when you put Mother Carly next to Jesus, what have you got? This hideous female eating her own children? But actually, it's not about mothers eating their children, it's about time as experience. 
In the Hindu iconography, Mother Kali gives birth and then in time consumes what she gave birth to. So this is a metaphorical way of recognizing that reality. We are born, grow up, are nurtured through Kali, through this life, and then at the end, she consumes us. So the name Kali, it's related to, the, say, the Pali word Kala, meaning time, or Mahakala, and the, the pictures of um, the, uh, the six realms. You, ha you have a, a round, uh, the, you know, the round figure with a, a round shape with the, the six realms depicted in, the, in the, the circle, and it's being held by this large, gruesome character, and that uh, the, the being holding the, 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 the circle, which is a mirror, is Mahakala, great time. So Kala, Kali, it means time. So that image of, of Mother Kali is Mother Time. So it's, she gives birth, things arise in time, but then also consumes her own children. And it's in interesting that uh, in the Greek mythology, Kronos, which also means time, also ate his own children. So that the, the, the Olympian gods like um, Hera and Zeus and, and so on, they were the children of, of Kronos, and Kronos ate them, and then they, uh, then he managed to be tricked by Zeus, and then uh, uh, the uh, uh, the sort of immortals. The, the, then they got reborn from Kronos's stomach, but they had the same image of Kronos, time eating uh, eating his own children. So that that um, uh, say the experience that Lumpur had in uh, in India is uh, say representing that uh, the kind of spiritual. Uh, imagery and uh, representing that you know even something that has an appearance that's kind of shocking or horrifying can be seen as part of the way things are so that we might not f feel that our, our aging and our, our hearing going or our eyesight going or our memory going or <coughs> the um, the kind of uh, general uh, say uh, wear and tear on our system as the aging process uh, proceeds, we might not think of that as beautiful or desirable. Oh, I don't want to look at that face in the mirror. Oh, really? Is that me? <laughs> and uh, and so, in our ordinary conditioned thinking, we we won't say, "Oh, that's that's attractive. Or that's beautiful. I'm so happy my hearing is going, or that uh, my digestion isn't so good, or my eyes are fading, or whatever." But what uh, Lumpur is pointing to here is that when we have a skillful attitude. And even things that we might think of as being uh, ugly or, or inconvenient or or, um, or cruel, we see well that's that's the way nature works. It's it's not something that is particularly pleasing or might not fit our preferences. But here it is. This is this is the way nature works. That, uh, things are born and they they're subject to the changes of of growing and taking shape and the, the forces of nature and injury and illness and activity. And then they do their thing in the world, and then they, 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 that which is integrated will necessarily disintegrate. You don't get the one without the other. So just to read the next, um, the next paragraph. Another way of looking at it is to think that we should be full of love and light and happiness and must destroy the evil forces. That is the thinking process again. We like the good, we don't like the bad. Jesus is good. Kali is bad. I want Jesus. I don't want Kali. And then the logic comes from that. Intuitively, though, when we stop trying to logically deduce what life is, we open to the reality of it. We've been coming to these Leicester summer schools for 15 years now, and we can see what's happening to us all. Time is like that, isn't it? We could say, well, it shouldn't be like this. But it is the natural experience of human beings on this planet. It's not ideal. It's not the way it should be according to what we might want. But it is the way it is. We're only discontented because the way it is isn't good enough for us. As we trust in the way more, however, we begin to feel this sense of contentment within ourselves and life. And feelings of somehow being cheated or being a victim, they fall away. So I think he's uh, in that comment about uh, we've been coming to these summer schools in Leicester for 15 years now. He's, uh, what's unsaid is, yeah, we're all a bit kind of more wrinkled and grey and kind of flabby and, uh, and decrepit. But he just didn't put it into words. But, uh, I, I take that as an unspoken comment uh, that he's, he's making there. So any thoughts, reflections, questions?
Anybody not aging here? <laughs> what I think surprises many people when they first go to India is that even there is so much poverty there, somehow the average Indian looks happier than we do. Many of them don't expect very much. Just to feed themselves and their families is enough. And in a place like Benares, the sense of the saves. There is this sense that life isn't just concerned with oneself, but is an expression. One belongs to the sacred, and is sacred oneself, rather than just some miserable, poverty-stricken beggar that should somehow feel ashamed for being in such a lowly state. It isn't like that there. The beggars in London seem to hate themselves. Maybe that's just because being a beggar here is the pits, according to our way of looking at things. It's the worst thing you can be. If you have to resort to begging, you're just a total failure. You're absolutely no good. It's all taken on an individual level here, which means you're somehow a worthless being. That is what individualism does to the mind, isn't it? You have no connection to anything, and you, and you, sat, you justify yourself by being in line with the values of society. That is your worth. Whereas in Asia, there is more of a resignation to the way it is. And this we can also criticize, but it has its good side. It allows people to accept things that we could not accept, yet have to in the long run. Sickness, old age, death and loss are inevitable for all of us, no matter where we live or how fortunate we are in the material world. So the sacredness of life brings a sense of joy if we know how to tune into it. We can get outside of ourselves and our particular problems if we know how to tune into the sacredness around us. The way it is, quote-unquote, is not based on an ideal, but on a sense of trusting and resting. It's based on having a sense of belonging to this realm because we are what we are, rather than because we've achieved anything within it. It's not a question of being the way we are, whether you like it or not. That's not the point. The way we are is the way we are. And that's the way it is. <laughs> and there's room for it all. Everything belongs. Okay, that, that might have been a bit tricky to follow. So it's not a question of being the way we are, whether you like it or not. Like a kind of begrudging feeling, well, this is the way it is. What am I going to do about it? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And... Um, you, you know, so that's what you're stuck with, so, so stop complaining, shut up and <laughs> be quiet. Um, that's not the point. The way we are is the way we are, and that's the way it is. And there is room for it all. Everything belongs. So it's, uh, it's a, an openness, or a, as he says, a resignation, a sense of, well, whether I like it or not, here it is. <laughs> and um, the, uh, uh, the attitude is that of an openness um, and that uh, also what you you find with particularly in in asia is because of the the mythology of past lives and future lives the understanding of karma um, there's a, in a way there's a there's a different kind of framework um, where in the west where you it, the the cult of the individual is very very strong particularly in the usa but everywhere so we think that what we've got is kind of our right, or we, we've earned it, or we've, we've got it, this is who we are, we, this is, we're a person of substance, we've got this position, or this reputation, or these, this property, or this kind of fancy um, uh, qualifications, or a car, or a, an appearance, and we take it very much as me and mine, and what we are, and we're not looking at beyond that in any kind of scope. So there's a kind of um, narrowness to that, Whereas uh, the, the Asian um, framework of past lives, future lives, and, the, and karma, yeah, I think it, there's much more of a sense of uh, snakes and ladders, if it, whether that works in every culture. <laughs> the, the board game that well, is in, in England, I think we inherited it from India, but so you have a, a, a board with about 100 squares on it, and you have on the board, you have ladders, and you have snakes. So the ladders go between different squares, and the snakes go between different squares. And you throw the dice and say, uh, if you get, you throw a four, then on the fourth square there's a ladder that goes up to the fifth row, the sixth row. Oh, you can 
get far ahead in the game, and then you you get a uh, and then the other person only gets throws at three, and they just end up on the third square. And then you're thinking, well, I'm way ahead now. I, you know, I've got to climb up that ladder. I'm way ahead of the other person. I'm beating them. So then you throw the dice again, and you get you, you throw far a five that takes you onto a snake and uh, slide down the snake back to square one. Damn. So it's I think it's a, a, a probably an ancient way in in India of uh, of teaching the laws of karma. The, Life is a lot of snakes and ladders, and uh, the um, probably most European and, and uh, societies around the world have similar games. Where that uh, you think you're nearly there, and there will be a particularly long snake on the on the 99th square that goes all the way down to the you know the, the bottom line again, just just before you get to the end and win the game. <laughs> down you slide, uh, so that that uh, that kind of um, perception. Is also there in in the society. So if someone really is in a difficult situation, they are they are begging on the street. Then the people who are walking by can, will be having somewhere in their consciousness. Well, uh, that could easily be me, or maybe in, la- in the last lifetime or a few lifetimes ago that was me, <laughs> or next lifetime that might be me. And uh, that uh, that sense of of a, a connectedness to that. And similarly. Someone who's who's in that kind of poor state, they know. Well, this this time it's really rough, and I'm I'm begging on the street. But you know, uh, you know, I'm uh, <clears throat> I might have been some very powerful or rich person in the past, or I might be another powerful or rich being in the future. Who knows? But right now it's like this. So there isn't such a, a sort of fixed um, identity, like Lumpur is saying. You know, I am this. This is what I am. I'm a I'm I am a loser. It's more sensible. In this lifetime, there's a lot of loss, <laughs> and it feels like this. And also, the sense of, of the um, the sacred. One of the things that that uh, I found, particularly being in, in India and traveling there a lot, is that even when you come across people who are really, really poor and in reduced situation, they would uh, when you, when there was a shrine or a, a temple, that the people who are really, really poor and and and, and lacking in any kind of privilege, they would. Feel that they belong, that they could make offerings in exactly the same way as other people. And they might only have like you know one little second-hand marigold, you know, <laughs> the marigold flower to offer, or kind of a few little uh, bits of second-hand incense that they picked up and gathered together. But they can make an offering, and the people around them will also say, "Okay, you know, make way and let them make their offering." And they wouldn't say, you know, "Who do you think you are? I'm making a offering this splendid garland," you know. But there's uh, there's a sense of even if you've got uh, nothing, you know, you, you're incredibly poor. That uh, just that gesture of puja, of offering, of respect, that is touching something that is, that is valuable, that's important, that is is noble within you. And that's and then the teachings, like the Buddhist teachings, and also the, the Hindu teachings, yeah, reflect that. It's a very one of the the um, mo- uh, most sort of touching encounters in the in the uh, in the Pali Canon is where the the Buddha is has been invited to give a talk, and he's he's in this um, center of this town, and the large number of people are gathered around. But the Buddha just sits there quietly and doesn't say anything, and people are just sort of waiting for him to start speaking, and he's just sitting there, and then the, the uh, he's not talking. He's been here for a long time. Is he going to say something? Is he not going to say something? Uh, what, why is he why is he being quiet? And then uh, I, I forget. I haven't looked at the story for a little while, but I think after a time, Venerable Ananda says to him, "You know, Venerable Sir, uh, <laughs> the, the, the people are gathered, and uh, uh, if, if it's appropriate to, to give a Dhamma talk, I think people will be happy to hear you speak." And the Buddha says something like, uh, well, "Not yet. Yeah, you know, in, in a little while, there's, there's somebody who's on their way here who hasn't arrived yet. So um, when they, when this person has arrived, then I'll I'll teach the Dhamma." And uh, the person he was waiting for was um, a, a poor farmer. And uh, I think what had happened was the farmer's cow had, had escaped and run away. And the farmer had, gonna, gonna had to go out and chase his cow, get his cow back, put the cow in the pen, and then made his way to the uh, assembly. And uh, <clears throat> so this, kind of, this uh, impoverished farmer, so all of the, kind of the, the high-ups of the town were sitting there waiting. <laughs> For the Buddha said, "No, no, we, uh, this important person hasn't arrived yet." And the important person was was a poor farmer. And then, when the farmer had arrived, 
then the Buddha said, yeah, give this man some food, he's exhausted. So they had to wait while they gave him some food and he had something to eat. And then, was, okay. then the Buddha said, okay, now I'll teach. Because he, he had intuited that this person was ripe for, for the, uh, in terms of wisdom and that would, if he heard the Dhamma, that he would enter the stream. And so that everybody, in the t- all the kind of uh, important people, quote-unquote, of the town had to wait. And so the Buddha was, was uh, say, holding out this he said the most important person is this poor farmer <laughs> who hasn't arrived yet, and then they have to wait while he has a meal and has something to eat. And he's okay. His <sighs> his mind is is alert. He's he's comfortable. He's refreshed. Now he can hear the dhamma. And so then, that um, that sense of uh, of uh, say um, equality um, that is there in the teachings. It's there in the culture. It's there across the. Um, the sort of the mindset, and obviously it's it's not completely absent in the West, and and that those kind of principles are, are around. But it's very, I feel it's very very strong in in uh, in Asia. Living in Northeast Thailand, uh, one of the the really interesting things when when I was first arriving there and sort of getting used to the monastery and the life in the village and how things worked in. In Northeast Thailand, and it was a very, very poor culture in, in terms of money. They had no electricity, no running water, basically subsistence farmers. And the the uh, the way that the village works is that um, the most important thing is the village. Then comes the family. Then comes you as an individual. And so, someone who was say quite rich or owned a lot of property. Um, uh, and um, was say someone who had um, yeah, a lot of worldly skills or, or resources. If they were if they were egotistical or they thought they were somebody special, the whole village would regard them as a complete idiot, and they wouldn't have any respect for them. Even if they they were, they were powerful in some respects, they they wouldn't be really looked up to. They wouldn't be sort of um, admired, and. Uh, because uh, that sense of being selfish or being egotistical is that poor, you know, it wouldn't be like hating the person, but like, poor idiot, poor you know, poor person. He's like a little child, sort of like a three-year-old who kind of thinks he's somebody special. Yeah. Poor guy. <laughs> and but someone who is always looking out for other people, someone who's like ready to lend a hand to help others with the the work around their their home or working in the fields or looking after the kids, you know, they would be highly respected. Even if they had they had to you know and they had a kind of really run down little house that they lived in or they had no no money or or a very, very small property. If they were someone who was generous, who's always help, looking to help, to see how they can help out, always wanting to, to spend time at the monastery then they'll be highly respected and and sort of revered oh you know she's really somebody special oh, yeah, john you know she's you know she's <clears throat> she's got 10 kids and but she's always you know helping out at the monastery she's always ready to lend a hand to other people and you know she's a really fine person even though you know she's uh, she's wearing rags and uh, has got uh, you know very little in the way of property that person the people would always be ready to to help her and to look after and to to provide support because of being unselfish and that sense of putting others first, so that that um, that those uh, inner spiritual qualities are much closer to the surface. And it was really uh, really striking coming from a sort of middle class Western uh, background where it's like you know going through school or university. The, you know, the highest marks you you know the higher the marks you get, the better you are as a person. Or, or that if someone Comes to to school in their, in their their parents drive them to school in a in a Bentley or a Rolls Royce. Whoa, you know, powerful family or somebody special. Or someone comes from a family with a, a title. You know, their 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 sort of parents are you know lady something or other. Oh my goodness, you know their their nobility, and that those are the sort of value systems. Or you at university and your professor has you know. Got so many awards or published so many books. You know, oh, this is someone really special. But uh, being in an environment where there's a whole kind of reversed uh, value system, that those sort of worldly achievements or possessions are, are regarded in a, something being really basically worthless and not particularly important. But the human qualities, what they call the guna dhamma, the, the real virtues, the kind of human 
uh, say, goodness of the heart. That's something that is uh, like the real uh, power or the real richness. So uh, Ajahn Jayasara would often, back in the, I don't know if he still does it, but he would make the comment that uh, Northeast Thailand is really a superpower. Even though it's, <laughs> it's kind of, which is in Thailand, it's kind of a joke because it's like the northeast is sort of the the, the sort of impoverished, rundown, you know, and uh, and sort of neglected and unloved. But he was saying, yeah, northeast Thailand is really a, a superpower because that's where you have so much of these uh, beautiful human qualities that are gathered together there. They, even though the, a lot of the people are very poor or illiterate or, or um, have no, you know, uh, say, a powerful role in society. In, in worldly terms, that those spiritual qualities make that, that a real, a real power source. So, from the uh, from that to, to finish this talk. So, from zero, things manifest. In experience, we are conscious beings. We don't create consciousness. When we're born, the experience of consciousness is natural to the state of birth, to having a body. We do, however, create many of the things in consciousness. Memories, passions, emotions, and thoughts are acquired after birth. They are habits, ways of thinking that we develop. But in emptiness, you actually go back to pure consciousness before you create yourself as anything. There is this pure presence of knowing and consciousness. Try to recognize that. You can't find it in a form to grasp. But you can trust it. You can trust being the awareness. When you see yourself as somebody trying to become aware, quote unquote, you're creating yourself again. What I'm talking about is more a sense of relaxing, opening, receiving, than trying to attain. Pure consciousness is not an attainment. You can't get it. You can only be it. Recognize, quote, it is like this, unquote. It's natural being at ease. You feel relaxed and at home here. All the problems of being a separate person, a personality, drop away here. So, as you begin to explore and investigate this, you'll find the way out of suffering. Any thoughts, questions, reflections? Kind of mind-stopping stuff. But yes. Say that again. The um, uh, it's quoted in um, the uh, the book by um, Venerable Paiuto. Um, Called Buddhist Economics, which we have copies in the in the library. Buddhist Economics, and so the author's Payuto P A Y U T T O, and it's in there somewhere. Actually, Vinita's not here. He's a reliable Pali quotation source. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, but also his, his books are, uh, are very well. Um, uh, say uh, uh, kind of. The, they're very well listed with quote, you know, sources of quotations and so on. But you should be able to find it. If you can't, let me know. I'll, I can track it down for you. Yes, William. Well, uh, I, I tend to take the long view of these things. But if you think this is a political crisis, you haven't studied very much history. <laughs> and so I'm not trying to be insulting, but it's just we focus on the, our, our felt experience of the present moment. And um, you know, our life and the things that are happening in our times are, are particularly intense. But if we cast an eye over the historical process over different countries, different parts of the world, then there have been various degrees of crisis and oppression and inequality and war of one kind or another 
you know, uh, all over the, the planet for a long, long time. So I'm not belittling that, but um, I feel that uh, one of the, um, the great blessings of, of Buddha Dhamma is that it's, uh, it provides a, a very wide-ranging set of tools to help us solve our differences of opinion. Our, kind of the, the, our individual concerns when they clash with each other. It offers many, many tools to how to work with those differences of, opi- of opinion and, and, and conflicts in skillful ways. And uh, to, like the first precept, panatipata, you know, number one, <laughs> in terms of conduct, number one, don't kill anything. So it doesn't mean that, uh, that no Buddhist is a, uh, no one who calls himself a Buddhist has ever killed anything, but that sort of laying down the standard, okay, that we put that as a as a priority, and um, the the many ways that uh, the Buddha established in terms of conflict resolution or, try, or helping people to to deal with their their say their difficulties, their feelings of, of greed or anger or frustration or jealousy uh, through understanding and through um, through dialogue, through uh, listening to each other, through the practices of asking for forgiveness or offering forgiveness and so forth. So that um, I'm obviously biased, but uh, one of the things that that drew me towards the Buddha Dhamma and the Buddha's teachings and practices is that um, it's just incredibly uh, rich in terms of uh, providing tools to work as a human being and to help us to, to live together with each other and we, both in in the in a group, in the family, in society, in the workplace, and on the planet, in, in ways that are, are um, uh, far more skillful, and we can settle our differences and deal with our our, our conflicts um, with uh, with much less bloodshed. And there's you know, many many stories from the the suttas where the, the Buddha is sort of intervening when like the the, the Kolians and the Sakyans were there was a drought one year and the Rohini River was drying up and then the 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 Kolians diverted the river into their land and then the Sakyans sort of said, Hey, you can't do that and then they tried to divert the river into their land and then they, they're ready to go to war with each other and the Buddha shows up in the middle and says how much is water worth and how much is blood worth? And uh, eventually gets them to talk with each other and to well they're kind of throwing insults and they're ready to, to start to, uh, slaughtering, uh, the the Buddha li- literally intervenes. He kind of does an intervention, and uh, and gets them to, to to talk with each other, and they figure out a way to actually share the water that's there in the river. And they find that they've got they both get enough to look after their their crops and to to survive through through dialogue and through not reacting to the insults that they they hurl at each other. And in in the scriptures, the account of it, it gives you all the the kind of insulting things that they say to each other, and what the Kolians say about the Sakians, what the Sakians say about the Kolians. You know, those guys, those people on the other side of the river. You know, and uh, so that the um, I feel that uh, if people want resources to learn how to mediate, how to solve conflicts, how to to um, look at the attachments to nationality, to um, to race, to uh, your privilege or status and your and your sort of immediate concerns of your group or your nation your nation or your whatever that the, the the tools are there uh, to be able to to help us work together and and uh, uh, say sh- find ways to live a shared life in uh, uh, if we want to make use of those tools the the driving forces of society are usually um, not inclined towards using those tools that the the reptile brain takes over it's like how dare you who do you think you are and you sort of, people are sort of weighed in and attack or they they typecast the other those people on the other side of the river that lot over there those those white people those black people those, the, the women the men the, the, you know, that group them you know, the mind he very easily demonizes the other and then the media often that's how people sell newspapers or get clicks up those uh, excited, enraged, sort of, how dare they, kind of emotions. That's what gets the, the, uh, the mind moving. 
so that uh, it's uh, to make those ways of dealing with with difficulty and difference uh, uh, that are more skillful and more humanitarian, getting those to be interesting and to encourage people to to pick those up. That's a, an ongoing an ongoing task, an ongoing effort. But I feel that within Buddhist practice, Buddhist traditions, uh, you have a, a really huge range of those kind of skills that are there if people want to use them, and uh, particularly meditation. You know, people just spend a few minutes watching their mind or just appreciating the fact that the mind can be trained just that much, that you can train your mind, not just to acquire information, but you can, you can train your mind to be peaceful, to be awake, to, to deal with praise and criticism, gain and loss. That's an amazing thing. And this, that, uh, I think the, the current enthusiasm about mindfulness in the workplace, in schools, in hospitals, and uh, prison system, even in the military, I feel is a is a really good step. Where people are recognizing that um, you can work with your mind, you can uh, train the mind to deal with its uh, its experiences and flow of, of ups and downs in a, a skillful and balanced way, and that the, we have the the resources to do that ourselves. Uh, so I feel. That's a, a, a really great uh, blessing in the world. Okay, got to uh, start with the next um, talk. This one is called "This Pure Subject Has No Name," and this was given on the sixth of August in two thousand and three. So, it's, uh, <coughs> the the day after the the previous talk. We are now, it seems, in the information age. There is an overwhelming amount of information available now. All that anyone could possibly want to know about the world, science, art, and everything. It's all praised, encouraged, and readily accessible. To me, however, the essence of education lies not in the acquisition of knowledge, but in understanding. Right understanding, in other words, for which you don't need much information. In other words, for which uh, <clears throat> the whole Buddhist attitude is one of awareness, of using awareness as a basis for understanding, and understanding your own mind, which you can observe directly. I can, I can acquire all kinds of ideas and theories, read case histories of people who have been through therapies or had religious experiences, but no matter how good or true any of it might be, it's still just acquired knowledge. It is not understanding. And there's a, an, in one of uh, T.S. Eliot's poems, he says, uh, where is the knowledge that is lost in information? Where is the, the wisdom that is, uh, is lost in knowledge? So we, we focus on information, and then <clears throat> the, uh, but uh, hidden within the information, there's knowledge, there's understanding, and then hidden within the knowledge, there's real wisdom. So it's kind of three layers down. Where is the, uh, the knowledge that is lost in information? Where is the wisdom that is lost in knowledge? <clears throat> the Four Noble Truths give the paradigm for that understanding, which doesn't mean that you limit your knowledge to the Four Noble Truths, it's just that those truths give you the perspective in which to see and contain other information, in which to have the wisdom to be able to see what is worth studying, what is worth retaining, and what is just worthless. There is something that we know, something we feel within ourselves that we need to understand but cannot if we're always going into something else. I found my first experience of looking inwards terrifying, actually. My life had been all about acquiring things from outside. But a friend on a ship I was serving on started trying to get me to look inwards, and I freaked out. It scared the hell out of me. But it was also a kind of awakening moment. After that, I became interested in psychology, meditation, and anything that moved towards introspection. So uh, Lumpur Sumedho, as probably most of you know, was in the U.S. Navy for about four years. And it was uh, uh, probably the same friend um, he's talking about here who uh, introduced him to, to Buddhism and gave him a, a copy of a D.T. Suzuki book. And uh, many times Lumpur Sumedho has, has uh, made the comment that um, he, he grew up in quite a, a 
devout Christian family, Episcopalian Christian family in the in the U.S., and had even thought about becoming a Christian minister at one point, and uh, uh, seriously pursued that, but had too many questions and doubts. Uh, anyway, so he was when he was serving in the navy, then uh, he um, was introduced to, to Buddhism, and he said after reading the first two paragraphs of this D.T. Suzuki book, he realized I'm a Buddhist. So uh, that. Uh, um, uh, as he said, it was a, it was also a kind of an awakening moment. So that was a, a, one of the reasons when we went to Japan, we went to um, to visit D.T. Suzuki's grave in uh, uh, near Kamakura. It was one of the since Lumpur Sumedho had been a sailor, he hadn't been back to Japan. So in 2009, he had an invitation um, from Professor Sato, who has a centre here in London, and they arranged um, uh, him to, to to go. Myself, Ajahn Yonarato went as well, and. Uh, uh, we went to um, many, many places, but part of the, at the end of the, the whole journey, we went to, to the, the little graveyard at this um, temple where D.T. Suzuki had his, his uh, studio, his, his office, his little library, his study center. And that's where he's buried. And this grave is next to R.H. Blythe, who was a, a translator of many, many haiku poems. The, um, uh, in this, this comment that Lumpur is making, and also so uh, echoed uh, in the words of T.S. Eliot, that one of the most um, uh, frequent themes of the Buddha's teaching is about how it's a deliberately limited teaching. And so the, the incident where he's walking through the forest, the Singsapa forest outside of Kosambi, and he picks up a handful of leaves, and he says, what is greater in number, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on the, the trees of this Simsapa forest? And, the, uh, the monks who are with him say, well, Venerable Sir, you know, the number of leaves in your hand is very small. The number of leaves in the forest is very, very great. And so then the Buddha says, well, what I know is comparable to the leaves in the forest. <coughs> what I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. So why do I only teach you that limited amount? Because the le- all the leaves in the forest, all the other stuff that I know, that doesn't conju- conduce to peacefulness. It doesn't conduce to liberation. It doesn't conduce to, to happiness. It doesn't conduce to to simplicity and, and, and uh, ease, harmony within the heart. That's why I don't teach, uh, teach it. Um, what, uh, what do I teach you? I teach you dukkha, the origin of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Why do I teach that to you? Because that leads to peacefulness, that leads to clarity, that leads to liberation, that leads to ease and, uh, and uh, peace, uh, ease in the heart and, uh, and uh, inner harmony. That's, that's why I teach it. So it's a deliberately limited teaching. And uh, so some of us might feel that the Buddha was being a bit stingy and we'd like to know a bit more about the other leaves in the forest. But it's like uh, uh, going to the doctor and uh, you say, you know, doctor, I'm really ill. And the doctor says, yes, you are ill and here's the medicine that you need to take. So well, look at all these other pills on your shelf. I mean, there's all kinds of bottles and tubes and kind of interesting stuff. There's pink ones and blue ones and red ones and purple ones. Can't I have some of those? This is what you need. This is this is what you need. This is exactly the medicine you need for your illness. You don't need any, the rest of that stuff. Yeah, but look, I mean, there's really nice ones over there. I like those. This is what you need. So the the uh, the the Buddha very very specifically and deliberately you know, limited his his teaching to what was uh, what was useful. And there's another dialogue um, related to that with a, a monk called Malunkya Putta. And uh, he was uh, annoyed. He wanted to know about the other leaves on the trees. And he was annoyed with the Buddha that he wouldn't talk about more of this, uh, what you can call metaphysical aspects of the teaching or things that are outside the normal scope of perceptions. And so the standard list of questions that people would, would ask, like, what happens to an enlightened being after death? Do they both exist? Do they neither exist? Do they both exist? Do they carry on? Do they not carry on? How do they carry on? Uh, is the, 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 the world one thing? And and the the the, the self another, uh, and so on and so forth. This list of ten philosophical issues, and the uh, Putta gets this idea like, well, I'm going to tell, I'm going to go to the Buddha, I'm going to tell him, look, if you don't give me the answer to these ten questions, I'm going to disrobe. So there. And so then he goes to the Buddha and he says, that's what he says to him, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you. you know, if if you don't tell me the answer to these questions, I'm going to leave. So then the Buddha is completely unintimidated by that. 
thoroughly unimpressed and said, Malunkia Putta, um, when you took the, the robes, when you became a monk, did we make an agreement that uh, uh, if you, if you uh, uh, took uh, ordination as a bhikkhu that I would answer these questions? No. So, we didn't make that deal. So, is it appropriate for you to say that if I don't answer these questions, you're going to leave? Well, not really. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so then they have a, a, um, a bit of a dialogue, and the Buddha said, you know, exactly the same way. You know, what I teach you is suffering, origin, cessation, and path. Why do I teach you that? Because that's what leads to liberation, to peace, to nibbana, to, to realization. And why don't I teach you this other stuff? Because it doesn't lead to peace, it doesn't lead to, to liberation, and so forth. So if, you, if, you want to, if you're interested, look at that up. It's a Malunkia Putta Sutta. It's, it's, uh, and that uh, he, um, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those kind of very choice dialogues that the, the Buddha has. But it's a, it's a very um, pragmatic approach to spiritual teaching. It's very practical rather than a sort of trying to give a philosophical explanation for the life, the universe, and everything. It's saying, where does it hurt? Okay, this is what you need. Do this and everything else will fall into place. So just to read a little bit more. I think many people actually are frightened of anything which focuses on themselves. You can talk about the noble truth of suffering, dukkha for example, and people will just dismiss it. Well, of course, everybody suffers. That is a way of brushing it aside, isn't it? It will, of course, touch some people because some are ripe and ready, as you say, whilst others just don't seem to be. The terrifying part in meditation is when the ego is being threatened. At first, there might be a lot of interest in solving my problems so that I can attain Nibbana, be free of suffering, be free from all the problems in, of my life, quote-unquote. But I found that as all that began to resolve itself, there was quite a lot of myself, my ego, that I really liked. And the thought of not being anything, of extinction, of cessation of the ego, the ego that is based on becoming something, on reinforcing itself, that was very threatening. People can have strong emotional reactions when their meditation gets towards the cessation of the ego. Panic and terror often become quite, a, quite strong at those times. One can feel as though one is dying. That's the message that you can get from the conditioning of the mind. Emotionally, it seems like, I'm dying, you're killing me. In about the third year of my life as a monk in Thailand, I began to have this inner voice which kept repeating, I want to live, I want to live, I don't want to die. It was like an obsession in my mind. This monastic life is killing me, I'm dying. It was a very urgent and powerful voice, very and a very convincing one. After the exoticness and newness of life in a forest monastery in northeast Thailand began to wear off, it became pretty dreary, really. There you're living in this very simple environment and doing the same things every day. Your friends write and tell you about all the exciting things happening back home. It stirs up this doubt. Jack Cornfield used to write to him, telling all the exciting things that are happening in his psychological encounter groups in California. So kind of dangling the bait. Here in England, I've tried to figure out what works and what doesn't for those making strong commitment to the monastic life. To take those vows is a pretty strong commitment, and yet for some, it doesn't work at all. Now I have developed a kind of cavalier approach to the comings and goings of the Sangha. So cavalier in that respect means kind of casual, um, easygoing, uh, uh, sort of an open attitude. Uh, <clears throat> So I've developed a kind of cavalier approach to the comings and goings of the Sangha. This one wants to ordain, that one wants to disrobe, and so on. When I first came to England, I had profound faith in the practice of meditation and the monastic life. I thought that that was all anybody needed. Just get into the robe, live by the Vinaya discipline, and practice meditation. That's why, in the beginning, I ordained almost anyone. But that turned out to be a rather naive expectation. I can agree with that. There was, there was some quote-unquote very interesting characters that um, uh, popped, uh, popped up in those early days and Lumpur was very happy just to put them in robes and shave their head. Then we had to live with, then we had to live with them. 
course, I was completely normal. <laughs> and uh, provided no, no difficulties at all. <laughs> Just get them in the robe, live by the Vinaya discipline and practice meditation. That's why in the beginning I ordained almost anyone, but that turned out to be a rather naive expectation. It didn't really work and brought doubts into the mind. Why isn't it working? Maybe it's because some are suited and some aren't. And, well, there are only a few with a little bit of dust in their eyes. The point is, most of us in the West come to Buddhism as adults, so we have already been socially and culturally conditioned. At first, we might have an intellectual interest in Buddhism, or we might be fascinated by it. We might even have enough faith to come to a Leicester summer school, or go on a retreat. My basic cultural conditioning being of a Judeo-Christian background, being brought up in a white middle-class American Christian family, meant it was easy for me to interpret Buddhism with a Christian mindset. That is all I had in terms of ideas. So without intentionally doing so, I interpreted experience through that way of thinking. I didn't consider myself a Christian at that point, but the patterns of thought, the assumptions I made, were not all that conscious, and therefore influenced how I interpreted how I interpreted or related to Buddhism. Training in a country like Thailand, which is very Buddhist, was a good mirror for that. It was also easy for people like me to misunderstand the Thais. Westerners have a kind of cultural arrogance that can look at them and say, well, they believe, believe in all these things, and they're kind of faith types. Whereas we would consider ourselves to be more discriminative, the wisdom types, <laughs> rather than the faith types easily misunderstand the people we were living with in a Thai monastery. That is when I began to see that my thought patterns were not really trustworthy, and that my emotional habits were based on these thought patterns, based on the sense of a self, an ego. So I could easily be emotionally upset when someone said something that offended my ego. I could also feel threatened by other approaches and ideas, and become outraged when people criticized Dung Po Cha. And the way I had of dealing with the Vinaya discipline made me feel incredibly guilty all the time. I tried hard to live up to the highest standards, but couldn't sustain it. So I would be taken over by a sense of guilt and anxiety about myself. You see this all the time amongst Western monks and nuns, this terrible guilt problem. With the Thai monks, and I think with the Tibetans, this is not a particular problem. They have a sense of shame, but their cultural basis is in alignment with their practice of meditation. Thai people generally like themselves. They don't dwell on their shortcomings. They accept their limitations as human beings with good humor and can laugh at themselves and their humanness with all that, it, that that implies, both its good side and its weak side. So there's a kind of earthy acceptance of life in Thailand. Now what Ajahn Chah taught it was from a place of understanding and a lot of faith, whereas most Westerners would be thrown into doubt because we were coming from ideas interpreting Buddhism idealistically. So, there, we would be in a, a Thai monastery full of idealism about how monks should be, and you would see them, and they didn't fit the ideal forms that you had in your head. So you'd be very critical of them. I would go into periods of criticizing Ajahn Chah after seeing things which made me think, if he's really an arahant, he wouldn't be doing that. The point is, an ideal arahant is one thing, but the reality of an awakened being is based on the way things really are, not on ideas of how they should be. So I was being challenged by the realities of existence. Because we often adopt Buddhism on the ideal level in the West, we become altruistic, compassionate, and see ourselves in comparison to the ideals we have of what a Buddhist should be. Then, what do we do? We feel guilt, maybe, or despair, because we're obviously not good enough. We can't live up to our ideals. And those people who do try to live up to their high ideals can be unbearable. You get some monks who try to act like Buddhas all the time, and they're very difficult to live with. So this is a big topic. <laughs> this, uh, there was one of the, the lay people staying here who went to a Catholic school, and, and that we were having a discussion over the last couple of days how almost, uh, you know, without, without thinking about it, one of the first things she always say is, I'm sorry. The kind of the apologizing for existing, and that I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and that uh, the this is a very strong cultural conditioning that I must be guilty. I'm not sure what I'm guilty of, but I'm, <laughs> I know I'm guilty of something. And uh, 
And so I'm not again. I'm not reading anybody's mind or pointing the finger, but it's, it's interesting how that is a, a, a kind of automatic, unconscious thing. I'm sorry, like we've created an offence just by being. We must have annoyed somebody or upset somebody. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, some of us have that very, very strongly. And uh, many years ago, uh, back in those early days of Chithurst, there was a, a, a Sri Lankan monk who was a novice, Sri Lankan novice living in the community, and, and he made this comment one day. He said, I can't understand why Ajahn Sumedha is always talking about self-hatred. I like myself. I'm quite a nice person. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be in a monastery. He said, why, why does he talk about self-hatred all the time, as if everyone hates themselves, you know, you know, so badly, and and you, the other people who were there were all Westerners. And we kind of looked at him and thought, <sighs> <laughs> "How do you explain?" <laughs> he wasn't being proud or sort of inflated. He was just saying, "I can't quite figure it out because, I, you know, I'm quite a nice person. Why should I hate myself?" And he was genuinely puzzled about where all this, what all this self hatred was about. Anyway, I'll finish there for today. It's already ten past seven. Leave it at that for now.